Hi, and welcome to Being Lutheran, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the biblical theology expressed in the Lutheran Confessions. Today, Pastor Jason Goodham, Pastor Adam Osher, and Dr. James Mostry bring us a special podcast. Being Lutheran is sponsored by the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota. Register today for the Summer Institute of Theology, which happens August 1st through the 5th. Classes include training in adult catechesis, congregational leadership, and Christian ethics. Find out more at flbc.edu forward slash s-i-t. Welcome to the Being Lutheran podcast. I am not Pastor Brett Bowe, who is not here with us today. I am Pastor Jason Goodham, and I have with me Pastor Adam Osher. And this is James Molstry. Hi, James. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, for those who might recognize the name, Dr. James Molstry is the dean of our seminary and the academic dean of the schools of the AFLC. And you recorded a series of interviews with us at the introduction to the Oxford Confession. That's right. He's also a football star. Yeah, uh, many years ago. Was, yes, back in the 80s. Back in the 80s, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah For that, an unfortunate college, no less. Yes, the North Dakota State University Bison. Yeah, uh, Harvard of the Midwest, they say. It kind of is as far as football goes. <laughs> so that was you. You made them. You made them great. They weren't good. Then you were there, and you won national championships, and now... Everybody wants to go there. You know, I'll go with that. If you want to, yeah. Yeah. The, You're right. And if you look back at who they play, <laughs> who, who have they had that have gone through there that people remember? They have they have Carson Wentz. They have Trey Lance. Is that, that his name, right? I was, yeah, Trey Lance. Good. I thought I, I screwed that one up. And then they have Dr. James Molstry. Yeah, that's you. It's usually those three. That's what yeah, people talk the about. Holy Trinity, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome back. Uh, I, I do want to drop this on you too. We didn't talk about this ahead of time. You are only the second repeat guest in Being Lutheran history. Wow, I feel honored. It's you and Flame. Okay. So if, wow. I mean, if you wanna, if you feel like uh, dropping a rap album. Okay. Uh, I think you're qualified you, now. You do not want to hear me rap. I'm serious. <laughs> <laughs> unless, it's a do. Pa- unless it's a package, I could do that. There, oh, yeah. very good. Yeah. Very good. Well, all right then. Uh, as I mentioned, Brett couldn't be with us. We've had some scheduling conflicts the last couple of weeks, uh, but we thought it was perfect timing where we're at in the Augsburg Confession to just take a quick break, take a couple bonus episodes. Uh, we are still planning on finishing the Augsburg Confession. Uh, we are... Uh, getting ready to start the second section of the Augsburg Confession, which is the last seven articles, disputed articles of practice, uh, is kind of how it's referred to. And and we'll get back there. Uh, But for now, being that it's graduation season, uh, it's also uh, for uh, a lot of Lutheran denominations in one way, shape, or form or another, it's call season. Uh, Wanted to talk about the nature of higher education in the Christian sphere, but but in general, and, and we're going to start off by having a conversation, especially about seminary. Uh, why don't you give us a brief introduction to the AFLC seminary uh, and what your assessment is, is the similarities and the differences between maybe the more well-known Concordia seminaries and, and where we fit uh, in the in the scope of conservative Lutheran theology with that. 
Yeah, our seminary is a, a four-year program, three years of academics in, in which the student receives a Master's of Divinity, as long as they have an undergraduate coming into uh, the program, and then a year of internship under uh, an experienced uh, pastor uh, in the congregational setting. And, and so the student, after three years of academic, and, and it's 90 credits uh, of academics, after three years, they will go on for a year uh, into uh, a congregational setting. Uh, the internship is, is paid. Uh, the, the, the congregation accepts that, that student almost as, uh, as they would an assistant pastor and serves that congregation faithfully, hopefully, for a year and then is eligible for a call in the AFLC. And so our, our academic program is fairly rigorous in, in that you must have 90 credits in those three years. That's 15 credits of graduate-level uh, study each semester, which is is a pretty heavy load for the guys. Uh, right now, you're talking about the end of the year. I was just uh, doing a, a, a survey among the guys. Uh, how many projects do you have left? How many papers do you have left? We have one, well, less than a week of, uh, the, the deadline is Thursday next, next week. We have less than a week of seminary. Many of them still have. I, I'm hearing 12 major papers at this point. I don't know how they're going to do 12 papers in one week, but they usually get it done somehow. Starbucks. Starbucks. That's how I did it. Uh, I adopted a 36-hour day for, <laughs> for a go. while and, and just worked on that. Yeah, so uh, already uh, probably to some of our listeners, we're using similar and different language at the same time. So what, what LCMS listeners might recognize as a vicarage, we call an internship. And uh, But at the same time, we offer the exact same degree. We're accredited and offer a Master's of Divinity. Uh, I think from a congregational perspective, one of the very uh, first things people fail to recognize about seminary is that it is an advanced degree. You're getting your master's mm -hmm. level education just to be a pastor. Right. And in any graduate level course... The expectation is that the student will spend two hours of study for every credit that they take. So if you do the math, 15 credits means 30, at least 30 hours of work outside of class, of 45 hours, including the, the class time, 45 hours of, of either class time or study. Now, besides that, our students also have to support, some of them support a family. And which means that almost all of our seminarians work. Uh, many of them will work from one o'clock to five o'clock at warehouses and so on. Uh, some uh, have wives that are getting their, you know, PhD putting hubby through or PhD putting hubby through. Uh, but <laughs> but many of them are both working to try to make ends meet. Um, and so it is it is a challenge. But you know what? We, what we have found is that you know, obviously God has been very faithful to our men, and they. All I, I interview them at the end of the year, uh, or actually at the end of the uh, end of the four years, and I'll ask them the question: How are you financially compared to where you were when you came in? Are you in a lot of debt? Are you in less debt? Are you in more debt? Do you have are you about the same? Most of them are saying we're about where we were when we came in, or actually in better shape financially, and that's because we have very generous donors here in the AFLC. And our, our, while our tuition is set at about 13000 per year, our students are paying 
approximately 2,000 of that 13,000 a year. Plus, they are, are receiving subsidized housing, and so they're living in these beautiful townhouses. I tell the students when they come, I said, this may be the nicest parsonage you will ever see, the one that you have on campus right here. And and those, uh, those townhouses that they live in are right around half the price of the going rate here in Plymouth, Minnesota. So. That works out really nicely. And, uh, well, I know from my perspective, I had student debt when I came into seminary, and I was a second career guy. I didn't start seminary until I was 27. Mm-hmm. And uh, we paid off our final student loan on internship. Mm-hmm. So after four years of seminary, we were actually in a better financial place than when we came into seminary. Right. And a lot of that is having a subsidized education by by a denomination in the AFLC that has a vested interest in making sure we give our pastors the best opportunities possible. Right. Yes. I had the exact same experience when I went through. Mm-hmm. You know, I ended up um, you know, having some school debt. I went to Northwestern here in, in St. Paul, and then, you know, I had bought a car and everything, and I left actually coming into my internship, which was actually under Dr. Molstry mm-hmm. out in Pittsburgh. Um, I went, you know, in with no debt at all, which was extremely beneficial. And I've, I've been thinking about that more often lately, about the nature of how our culture is so indebted. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's so trapped by all kinds of debt. We hear it on the news. We talk about, you know, financial, you know, our student debt forgiveness and that sort of thing. Um, at the end of the day, I think as a pastor, that's a huge blessing mm-hmm. to be able to be, um, debt-free as you leave, you know, seminary so that you're not strapped by where, where, if God calls me here Mm -hmm. on this salary, can I survive? And God's been, you know, faithful that way. Yeah. Now, one of the, I think one of the questions that you asked me, and I I may have strayed a bit from that question, you're asking about the program itself. And uh, our program is, is, I'm sure, similar to the Missouri Synod and the Lutheran Brethren Seminaries in some ways. But it's also different in some ways, too. Uh, I often will compare programs when I'm looking at program review as I am concerned about uh, making sure that our seminarians are getting what I would consider the best education they can possibly get and to prepare them for pastoral ministry. One of the things that we do a little bit differently, and, and some of your Missouri Synod pastor friends who are listening will, will uh, recognize the difference here, is that we do not do uh, what might be called a, um, a biblical orientation or a Bible orientation class. We don't do a New Testament orientation or an Old Testament orientation class. We actually just delve right into the books themselves. Now, obviously... If you're going to take the synoptic gospels in three credits in one semester, it's going to be a bit of a survey. Right? You're, you're not, but but <laughs> or <at> the, whiplash <laughs> or whiplash exactly. <laughs> but what we attempt to do, and what our professors attempt to do in exegetical theology, is to take certain portions and delve deeply into those portions. And so it's not just a survey of uh, three three uh, books that are similar in nature, but rather, when we talk about synoptic gospels, that is, but rather, uh, usually our professors, our, our New Testament professors will take one or two or three key passages, and there will be uh, a, 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 deep, a deep dive into those passages, uh, both in the original language and then in the interpretation and, and so on of those passages. Yeah, and one of the changes that we've made since Adam and I were in seminary together is that the 
well, at least Greek mm-hmm. is now a prerequisite to get yeah. into seminary. And, and Adam, you and I had Greek as first-year seminary students, which uh, puts a little bit more of a burden mm-hmm. on the students uh, because personally, I enjoyed learning a language in a classroom setting. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm disciplined enough to do it <laughs> on my own. Yeah. But I remember sitting in my very first class, the very first week of school, and the old curriculum at our seminary was all of the students were together almost all of the time. Mm-hmm. And so we were dumped into a classroom with with senior seminarians and middler seminarians and junior seminarians. And I had had one class period of Greek and the instructors talking about the aorist. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm looking around and, and, and <laughs> a couple of my other junior classmates are looking around and I mean, yeah. those first, especially that first ses- uh, semester is a lot of smiling and nodding as you mm-hmm. kind of get up, up to speed with the rest of the student body. Well, probably actually the first year, and this is why I wanted to do this, uh, uh, and this has been uh, a, a great interest of mine, that, we, that the students have uh, at least a modicum of Greek when they come in. Uh, what would be the equivalent of hoping? We're hoping one year of Greek, <laughs> um, and 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 to do many of them bring the Greek in. Then what they've they've taken it at whatever undergraduate college they've been to, uh, which by the way, uh, NDSU does offer uh, a couple of years of Greek if you. Anybody really? wants to take it from those are frat high. houses and it's different. Okay, <laughs> okay. Phi Beta Kappa does not count so, as yeah, Greek. The, so you mean they're not learning Greek there? No, oh, no, no. Okay. They're learning other things. Well, I'm mistaken then. Yes, uh, but we have a we have a Bible Mesh program that uh, uh, that we get from Zondervan, and our uh, students are a lot are are able to take a year of Greek then before they come to seminary if they haven't taken in the, in an undergraduate program. And the purpose of that is so that, you know, just as you said, Jason, so that they can hit the ground running, so to speak. They can, we can, we can offer an exegetical course uh, immediately and uh, a, a New Testament exegetical course immediately, and they're already delving into the original language. And, and so that first year now, instead of taking Greek one, they're actually taking Greek two which helps them to understand how to actually use the Greek language. That's a Greek too. Is just a, it's an it's an upper level, basically how Greek one is vocabulary and and understanding the language itself and and being able to diagram Greek sentences and so on. Greek two is what does this mean? What difference does it make? And how do we use Greek in our study and in our sermon preparation, Bible study preparation, and so on. Yeah, Greek 2 is the class that you give to seminarians to ensure that 100% of their sermons don't start with, well, in the Greek language, this, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it tells you the preaching points right. that you're identifying rather than just the structure of the language. It was one of my favorite classes mm-hmm. in seminary after the frustration of all of the rote memorization right. Right. and all of the syntax in Greek 1. I think... Yeah. Uh, I probably would have thrown my Greek Testament out the window if I hadn't had Greek too. It helps make sense of what, you know, why, why are we doing this? Why are we, why are we, why are we trying to understand this language, this dead language? And, and Greek too helps us understand that. Now, what we're doing, uh, what we're beginning to do is uh, the same thing for Hebrew now. Now, we're not asking that they have a Hebrew prerequisite, but we're starting to use, or starting to uh, offer Hebrew first year because we really want Hebrew to be used uh, in ministry. Again, seminary, what we're trying to do is prepare men for ministry. Uh, I would I would go around to various uh, 
districts, pastors, and, and go to pastors' meetings at these districts. And I, I would ask the pastors, now, how many of you are actually using Hebrew in your sermon prep when you're, when you're well, first of all, some of them are never preaching Old Testament, which is a shame, right? Uh, but those who are preaching Old Testament often are not using Hebrew at all. And I ask, why are you not using it? Because we never really learned it. You know, they, they, they took it, but they, but they, they took it just as a, as a class to take without actually using it in the Old Testament courses. And you have to use it in the Old Testament courses in order to be able to use it in ministry. And that's what we're, that's what we're beginning to do more and more at, at our seminary, as, as they're learning Hebrew uh, first and second years, so that the last two years of seminary, they can actually use it in the Old Testament exegetical courses. I would say one of the, the keys kind of takeaways, things you were discussing before, uh, about the, the Bible classes that make... Um, our seminary unique, if you will, is, and this is a phrase I've really had to try and figure out how to unpack, but I heard one uh, former professor say it this way, we don't teach about the Bible, mm -hmm. we teach the Bible. Yeah. And in those classes, as you're digging into the, the text of scripture itself, digging into the original language, especially in the New Testament, and you know, hopefully in, in, uh, more so even in, in the Old Testament, moving forward, you're getting into what God says. And that's, that's unique about our seminary in, in some of the other seminaries I've heard, you know, I've, and I've looked into it's God's word is actually living active. It's doing something. And I, I think we do a good job of making that emphasis known and making it applied and real and a part of our program all the way through. That was my experience. I know that's still going on here as we, as we talk now too. That's the same distinction between preaching about the gospel and preaching the gospel. Yeah. You can study a lot about scripture, mm -hmm. but studying scripture is an entirely different exercise. But then, and, and, it's, and it's even more than that, many seminaries have various tracks, correct? Uh, there's a youth worker track, for instance, a worship leader track, perhaps. There's a uh, Old Testament, New Testament track for those who are hoping to be professors someday. Uh, various tracks. Ours, we, we basically have one track, and that is uh, preparing men for ministry. Now, that ministry might be a little, it, it, it could, it normally is pastoral ministry, but for, for some of our men, it, it has been, it's been something else. But we are preparing them for ministry. And, and that means that I can tell our professors, our instructors, in your class, as you're teaching, be sure that you're applying this to pastoral ministry and the congregation. You are applying this, whatever, even, you know, general church history. What does this have to do with the congregation? Um, Soteriology, what does this have to do with the congregation? The Gospel of Luke, what does this have to do with the congregation? And uh, preparing men then to bring this knowledge. is not just knowledge that they are storing up, but actually going to be able to use as they go into the congregation. I think perhaps one of the distinctions that would be helpful for us to flesh out, we have a, we have a decent chunk of our listenership that is not Lutheran, or, or, or maybe we'd say not Lutheran yet, pre-Lutheran. Mm -hmm. huh. um, uh, I, I know this is the case generally for all of the conservative 
Lutheran seminaries out there, but specifically for us, because that's where the experience is, you're, when you go through seminary, it's not just to receive a grad school degree. You're not a free agent after seminary. The program is designed that at the end of the four years, you are prepared to be a pastor in the AFLC, much like the Concordias, you are prepared to be a pastor in the Missouri Synod or in the Lutheran Brethren or in the AALC, however that looks. There's, there's a distinctive between just a master's degree or, or you know, some of the other, an STM, a master's of sacred theology, versus a master of divinity. We are simultaneously educating and training. Mm-hmm. Okay. I hope it's okay to go here. Yes, go ahead. But I, is it okay to talk about the call? Yeah, please. Yeah. Uh, because I think there's, there's been a lot of con- confusion about the call. Um, and, and I've heard this in the AFLC, but I've heard this outside the AFLC too. Many men feel, they, they feel that God has called them to ministry. They feel that. It's a subjective call then. So how do we make that subjective call objective? And I think the process of going through our seminary and then the process of the call to another to a to a congregation, I think makes that subjective call objective. And I, and I tell the students when they come in, they, they take pastoral theology from me the fir- very first semester, and sort of uh, being a pastor 101. And I talk about the call in that uh, in that class. And and most of the guys they, they have no idea what they, they said. I, I'll ask them, why are you here? And well, I kind of felt like God wanted me to be here. My grandma said, I think I'd, you'd be a really good pastor someday, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, and so it's very subjective. I said, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be evaluating you all along, which, by the way, we, we may get into the whole topic of residential, why we have a resident, and this is one of the reasons why. I said, so I don't say I'm going to be watching you, I, I, but I, I am going to be evaluating you throughout. These first three years, you're with me. Our professors are going to be evaluating you in the classroom. uh, They're assigned a a, a mentor, a a professor who is a mentor for uh, their time here in the seminary. And they will be going out to lunch with them, talking to them, trying to figure out, you know, where they are spiritually and so on. And evaluating all along, and then I will be telling the board of trustees. I, I give them a report. Usually every, well, every six months or so, how the students are doing. And that's, that's objective. I am, this is what we see. This is what we observe about each one of these students. And then they will be approved or not approved for internship, for vicarage. Again, that's an, that's, that's an objective. They, they go before the board. The board interviews them and decides whether or not they go uh, on the vicarage or the internship. The professors have to sign off on that. I have to sign off on that. And so, again, very objective. We, we have objectively said we see this man as being able to, qualify to, go on internship. During the internship, that pastor then, that, that they have a supervising pastor, that pastor is observing them, writing reports to us every month. We're checking on them every month to see how they're doing, and the congregation is also giving us input about that student. Again, objectifying that subjective call. 
by the time internship is over, near near the, I should say, about two thirds of the way through internship, they are allow or they are uh, to go before three boards in the AFLC: the coordinating committee, the board of trustees, and the colloquy committee. Each one of these committees interviews them and determines whether or not they should be available for call. Uh, another step towards objectifying that subjective call. And then finally, finally, they're available for call. And when that congregation issues them a call and they receive that call, it's only then that they can be ordained in the AFLC. And that call then, which was so subjective at the very beginning, has gone through all of these stages. And I, and I tell the students that at the end, you know, you can know that God has called you in the ministry because You've gone through all of this. All of these people, all of these uh, men have, 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 have observed you and, and decided this man, yes, this man, I believe, is ready to be a pastor and is called by God to be a pastor. Yeah, there's there's kind of two sides of that coin, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 one of the things I enjoy, you, you brought up our board of trustees. I'm a member of the board of trustees of our schools. Uh, w- one of the things I think is so valuable in our process in the AFLC is that at no point in time during the seminary process is a call into a congregation guaranteed. Yeah, we true. we never owe a student that, and, and and that's not to say we lord that over them. But it's to reserve the right of evaluation to say either you're not ready yet or you're not ready altogether based on what you've demonstrated throughout this process. And so seminary becomes not only an educational process and a training process, it's also a vetting process. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this this is a gracious process. And here's why. If that man is not ready to be a pastor, it would be a sin to put him in the congregation. Absolutely. It would harm the congregation, and it would harm that man and his family. It's just wrong. And so it's important for us to be honest, open, absolutely honest with each one of these men and tell them, and, I, and I've had to do that, uh, you're, not, you're not ready. You, you need to take a year off, or uh, you may be, uh, I, I don't see this in you, and, and I, I want others to also see the same thing, but I, this is what I see in you right now. And it's, it's important then for, to be open and honest with all of our seminarians, uh, and they know that. They know I'm going to be open and honest with them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them when they're, when they're wrong. I'm also going to praise them when they're right. And, and uh, we do that for the good of the congregation. Well, I think that's a good spot to end. We'll pick up this discussion uh, on the next episode. James, thanks again for your time. You're welcome. Uh, I don't know how Brett signs off. What does he say? Uh, sometimes we just quit. Okay. But uh, Just land the plane? Yeah, and, and sometimes we just say, you know, we're done. That, that sounds good. And then we all look at each other, and then you push the button, and okay. we stop recording. So on that happy note, thank you, James, for joining us. We're very glad to have you with us. You're today. welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please look us up on the web at beinglutheran.com. Also, invite a friend to check us out on Spotify and iTunes. Please join us next week as we continue our discussion on Lutheran theology and its importance in the church. God bless you and have a great week.